Well, I'm going to say some things just out of my heart and give some of my thoughts on this subject of racism and prejudice and, and tribalism and culturalism. So I'm going to go back through our, our definitions that we have covered for several of these lessons. And we'll just start with culturism. Culturalism is, uh, we said, the belief in the relative superiority or inferiority of certain cultures. Uh, this is a 19th century term. That's when it was coined and it began to be used but then fell out of usage. Probably because it's, it's hard to get offended at somebody if all they're doing is disagreeing with your culture. And therefore it wasn't potent enough to divide people. I don't know why it fell out. That's my speculation. But I like the term because it, it's a term that helps me understand some of the things I need to be as a pastor and preacher and helps me to also put a name to diagnose what's really going on with what's happening in our nation. And I'm going to explain that better in a minute. It is discrimination or prejudice based on these cultural beliefs. So if you're being discriminated against because you eat with chopsticks and not a fork, that's not racism, that's culturalism. It has nothing to do with whether your eyes are slanted and your hair is jet black. I like eating with chopsticks, actually. Uh, if I was a stupid bunch of chopstick eaters, uh, that's not a racial slur or a stupid racial term. That's a culturalist term. You're, you're discriminating based on culture. We went to this restaurant and they ain't got no chairs. We had to sit on the floor. Well, you were probably in a Turkish restaurant or it could have been an Asian restaurant. That's just dumb. See, that's not a racist remark. That's just culturalist. That's making fun of a cultural difference, you know. And then overseas, they, they say things like, those rednecks, they ram cars into each other for sport. Never seen such an ignorant or backwards sport. It's called the Derby. What's wrong with the demolished demo derby? You know, every culture has its thing. We race horses. In, in uh, Dubai, they race camels. Some people race dogs. It's all sport. It's all culture. It's a rarely used word, this culturalism, developed in the late 19th century. So then a culturalist is someone who judges a culture as superior or inferior. And I believe there is biblical permission to do this. Now, if you don't have Bible to do it, don't do it. But the culture of polygamy is a wicked, abominable culture. Therefore, we judge it as inferior because it mocks God and its sin. The culture of the sex slave trade is disgusting and deplorable. And therefore, we, we judge it as inferior. So we technically are being culturalists when we say those things. But as I said uh, and taught, we're, that makes us a biblical culturalist. We're judging cultures in line with the Bible. And if they don't line up with the Bible, we condemn them. Why do we condemn them? Because the Bible condemns them. Uh, Dr. Barclay was telling me about being someplace in the Amazon, he did, used to do a lot of work in Central America and South America, and he said the culture in that tribe was on the eve of your daughter being married off, the father would have sex with his daughter. That's their culture. We condemn that as deplorable and disgusting. Now, they don't know any better. They're, they're pagans. They're on their way to hell, but that's their tradition. Now, we, we, we as Americans, we as Christians think, ugh. Ugh. but they don't know any better. But we can condemn that as an inferior culture, not based on white America or 21st century America, but based on the Bible. Amen. So a culturalist is one who practices culturalism. 
the use of this term has begun recently, but is perhaps long overdue. And I'm, I'm big on this. And I want us as a church to be in the know on this and educated that a lot of what's going on is not true racism in our nation. It's culturalism. We'll explain that a little bit more. We have covered that in previous lessons. So that brings us to our third term that we've, we've looked at and we are familiar with, which is stereotype or stereotyping. This is any thought or caricature widely adopted about specific types of individuals or certain ways of behaving intended to represent the entire group of those individuals. We all understand what a stereotype is. Every one of us fits into a stereotype, and every one of us uses stereotypes as our intel before we go into any situation. We're all guilty of it. Uh, and it doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just, it's human nature to try to anticipate an outcome based on a past experience. So if I'm walking down the streets of Nashville and approaching me are four big old boys wearing overalls and John Deere ball caps, I'm instantly going to peg them based on my experience with people that look that way. So what's the stereotype? These are country boys. I could be dead wrong, but based on my experience with big old boys wearing overalls and John Deere hats, these are farmers, these are country boys. But, you know, if I walk up and talk to them, could be they're actors from a music video around the street if it's Nashville. And they they could, be, could be Halloween, could be a costume. You don't know, but approaching them, I'm stereotyping them. I have to because that's human nature. Just like you stereotype a pot on the oven. I'm going to stereotype and say it's probably hot and could hurt me, so I'm going to handle with caution. Stereotyping helps us to proceed with caution. Likewise, if I'm on the streets of Nashville and approach me are three big black boys wearing starter jackets with Oakland Raiders. Different stereotype. Does it make me racist? No more than the three big old country boys make me a racist. How about three Asian guys walking down towards me in kung fu uniforms? Or how about three guys walking down in Kuwaiti robes with the little red thing on their head with the big chic beard? See, these, we're, we're, we're interacting based on stereotypes. We have to. It doesn't mean there's a prejudice. It means we are basing our future experience that we can foresee on a past encounter that gave us all the information we have because we are smart individuals. Now, if we start to get if we start to prejudge the situation against them, that would make us prejudice because we really don't know how the situation is. And uh, concerning the, the Kuwaiti wearing the white robe that you see with the little red thing and the black band around their head, uh, that's why they do call them ragheads. A turban is something totally different. A turban is not a Muslim, it's not a Middle Eastern. A turban is for a Sikh, thank you, out of India. And so I don't know if those are called towel heads or ragheads, but you don't know. That thing, could, they could be three Christians. You don't know that. Same like with the three guys coming down in the kung fu uniform. It could be three Christians coming out of a youth conference and they just dressed up because it was kung fu night at the conference. But we start to stereotype based on past experience. So then I have this, third, this fourth term that we coined, biblical culturalism, which every one of us is called to do. Biblical culturalism is the belief that all cultures of all nations and ethnic groups contain sinful traditions. Let me read that again because my mind is going back. I, there's a, there, I met a, um, I was at a Dr. Barclay straight talk in Texas seven, eight years ago. And I met a man who was a former Muslim out of Egypt 
who now has a massive ministry to Muslims all over Europe. But his, his flyer that I still have has him on the cover preaching, and he's dressed in the white sheik robe with the towel head, the rag head. Looks like a red dish towel. But again, he's a born-again, spirit-filled Pentecostal who's connected with Kenneth Copeland and some others. But if you and I were to see him on the streets of Cookville, we would probably call Homeland Security based on a stereotype. And yet, I tried honestly for about three years to get him to come and preach for us, but I could never get a hold of him. He's out of Sweden now. I think Oslo. All right, back to biblical culturalism. The belief that all cultures of all nations and ethnic groups, that includes white, black, Hispanic, Asian, contain sinful traditions. Every culture, even the white American culture or the black American culture, contains sinful traditions. We don't like to think that because we think we're right because this is all we know. Because it's, your, it's, it's all the context you know because it's how you were brought up. That's why we study the Bible, to have our eyes opened to see where we might be wrong. That all groups contain sinful traditions, sinful customs, sinful habits. How many Christians are skipping church this morning and that's their habit? Or how many Christians are robbing the tithe this morning and that's their habit? Or how many Christians think it's their job to steer the pastor this morning in Cookville and that's their habit? That's sinful. And therefore, these ethnic groups and cultures must be subjected to the perfecting work of God's law and New Testament doctrine. Or in short, the kingdom's culture is flawlessly preeminent and therefore takes precedence over any long-standing traditions. Which basically means we just have to change to line up with God. It's what we've endeavored to do as pastor in this church. I don't care about Cookville's culture. I don't care about the American culture. Uh, I don't care about the African culture. When we go to Africa this afternoon, uh, we will be going to Uganda and addressing marriage culture, among other things. And where we go in, in East Africa, they are not good at marriage. They are worse than a Cookville father and husband. And Cookville, Cookville's pretty bad at marriage. But the men don't know how to treat their wives at least in East Africa. We've done several marriage seminars there now. By marriage seminar, I mean I've spent a whole day out of a conference dealing with marriage. Uh, that's a culture we're going to address. In Kenya, some of the pastors are having to be removed because they have multiple wives. And that's a cultural issue. We don't care about this is your tribal culture. We don't care about that. You violate the scripture. You don't qualify to be a bishop. You don't qualify to be an elder. You don't qualify to be a deacon because you have nine wives. But I'm called. Sorry. Your calling does not exempt you from obeying the scriptures. And you know what? We've never been called racist addressing that as white people. Because we don't come as white addressing black. We come as Christian addressing Christian. I love the word of God. It's the great equalizer. Rich and poor, old and young meet together. The Lord is maker of them both. God is the great equalizer. So here are my thoughts. And I've been scratching around at some of this, watching our nation the last six months, probably the last eight years. So here are my thoughts. I've, I've interviewed a lot of the black folks in our church to get their ex, uh, experience and their perspective. I've talked to Mr. Cephas, who is currently getting his PhD on this very subject of, uh, you'd have to ask him the exact title, but racial issues, parenting issues, inner city issues. So he's given me some input as I've tried to build this because over the last four or five weeks of us teaching on tribalism and racism, the big thing we've hit upon is this culturalism, that so much of what we're really dealing with has nothing to do with skin color, but the culture that's associated with skin colors. 
And that's where people fail to make the distinction. I personally don't believe there is as much pure racism in America as it's made to feel. Racism being, I think I'm better than you because I'm a skin color you're not. And you're inferior and incapable of what I'm incapable of because you have a different pigment. I don't believe that's here maybe like it was 50 years ago. And certainly I don't believe it's here like it's being preached from the talking heads on television. Is there true racism in America? Absolutely. But if you were to ask 90% of America, do you think you're better than someone of a different color? They're going to tell you, no. Are they going to say something stupid at times that is, quote, called racist? Sure. In every direction, whether they're black, white, yellow, red, etc. So here are my thoughts. As a pastor, born and raised in the Deep South, among the racism there, and raised in diverse Seattle as a teenager, where whites were 40% in Seattle, Asians were 40%, and everybody else was the remaining 20. Most of my friends in high school were Asian, and not just Chinese. Filipino, Thai, Japanese, Viet Cong, that's, that's a political, Vietnamese, Chinese. I had some Russian friends. I had a Chilean friend. I had a Mexican friend. I had maybe a handful of white friends. There weren't many blacks in Seattle. There was one, his name was Jabari. I remember him, and there might have been one other black guy at my high school. Mostly Asians, though. So I was just brought up recognizing last names that didn't sound American, and the, the Asian thing didn't mean anything to me. And I, 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 these are my thoughts having traveled to many cultures around the world and having scratched at this issue we're facing now. So here's some of my thoughts. Most of what America is experiencing now could be called a prejudice or bigotry based on a cultural stereotype tied to a skin color. Bigotry and prejudice are not racism. Bigotry, bigotry deals with uh, opinions and, and philosophies. When you look at the definition of bigotry, prejudice means a treatment based on differences. Uh, you prejudge something. Now, in America, we slur everything, even our words. I mean, our words run together, and we allow even words to overlap. In fact, let me, I don't have it. Let me pull up for you a definition of bigotry. Because bigotry is not racism, by definition. And one of the things we have to fight as Americans is we have to fight to maintain intelligence, especially with this whole, you know, Internet thing. Bigotry is defined as the stubborn and complete intolerance of any creed, belief, or opinion that differs from yours. So bigotry, by definition, is an intolerance of different creeds, beliefs, or opinions. has nothing to do with race. Nothing to do with race. We think if I don't like blacks, I'm a bigot. No, technically, if I don't like blacks, I might be prejudiced or racist. Prejudice... And we have all these definitions in the other lessons. I just don't have them in front of me. Prejudice is an unfavorable appealing or, or uh, opinion or feeling formed beforehand or without knowledge, thought, or reason. Uh, a preconceived opinion or feeling, either favorable or unfavorable. Unreasonable feelings, opinions, or attitudes. Unreasonable opinions, feelings, or attitudes, especially of a hostile nature regarding an ethnic group, a racial group, a social group, or a religious group. So that's not even racist. It's prejudice. It doesn't mean you hate them. Just you have an unreasonable opinion or attitude against them. Okay? Now let me say this. Every one of us has bigotry in us. And every one of us has prejudice in us. 
But I wholeheartedly, in this church, I wholeheartedly reject the notion that any of you are racist. And yet, if you say something that doesn't line up to the word police, you'll be labeled a racist. And all it is is a total ignorant dissolution of terms and peace. And it really irks me that America is becoming so stupid. We can't even spell GRE anymore, much less get one. (laughs) That's a funny joke, by the way. So, most of what America is experiencing today could be called a prejudice or a bigotry. That is, an unfavorable feeling or attitude or a hostility towards a differing opinion that is based on a cultural stereotype, a stereotype based on culture that is tied to a skin color or what we defined last lesson as cultural, two lessons ago as culturalism, believing that one culture is superior and another inferior. But if your culture involves rape and abortion, that is an inferior culture. But if it's associated with a different skin color, why am I labeled a racist if a group of society who's a different color is known for their raping and their aborting? I'm just making something up right now. If I speak against their raping and aborting, I'm called a racist because the culture is tied to a color that I'm not. See, you see the ignorance and the hypocrisy in that. It has nothing to do with race or skin color. It has everything to do with the behavior pattern. So as Christians, we're called to confront behavior, irrespective or irregardless of color. And so one has pointed out, if I treat you differently based on color, that's technically racism by today's standard. But, what, but am I not just supposed to be blind to color and treat you based on your behavior? Right. So I'm supposed to treat you based on behavior, not color. But what if your color is known for a certain behavior? I still have to treat the behavior the same, even if it's tied to a color. Amen. I think you, hopefully you can see what we're talking about here. So let me address the police black tension in America right now. I've sat down and talked with a lot of folks about this. I called a bunch of our black members in the church yesterday just to see what their experience was. Let me give you some statistics. Let me give you some, just some, just some information. We understand right now in America, and again, we're, we're mostly white, but we are interracial church. And I should say we live in a rural community that has very low crime, relatively speaking, violent crime. Our crime is 90% drug related, maybe 95%. And 99% of what's in our jail up here is white. It's white meth. All right. So that is our experience in Cookville. What we have raging right now in the major cities of America is this tension between police and blacks. We're all aware of this because we're Americans. If you understand, uh, let me, okay, let me read some of this. Inner cities, every inner city around the world, inner cities, downtown urban areas around the world, because I've been in a lot of big cities around the world, they have unique and stereotypical cultures associated with them. Just like agricultural regions around the world have unique and stereotypical cultures tied to them. You know, in the, in the, in the, in the country, you don't lock your doors. And you're, in the country, somebody knocks on your door at 3 a.m., they need help. In the city, somebody knocks on your doors at 3 a.m., they need a gun in their face. 
right? That's the culture. That's the stereotypical culture. So this is, this is the stereotypical culture in every major city around the world, inner city. Slums are there. Overcrowding is there. Poverty is there. And much higher crime and violent crime is there. That is every city in the world. That is not the case in smaller rural communities, suburbs, small metroplexes. It's just not the case. So when you understand that in 1990, specifically uh, in the Northeast, the Midwest, and the West, 95% of blacks lived in the cities in 1990. It's now it has, in, tw- in 27 years, you basically are now split half. Half of the blacks in America, these are recent statistics. Yeah, well, I've got the statistics. 39% of blacks in America live in suburbs now. 15%, actually we should say 25% live in rural communities or smaller areas like us. And then 36% live in cities. So there's a different experience to be had living in the city as opposed to living in the rural suburbs, smaller metroplexes. All right? We know the stereotype of the inner city. In America. Okay? If you understand that in the inner cities around the world... Inner cities have to be, are, I shouldn't say have to be, I don't want to, anything I say here is not going to go well for me as a white guy. (laughs) Inner cities are policed differently. And a unique tension always arises. Always. It's a catch-22. Whereas I believe both sides are wrong, black and police, and both sides are right, black and police, generally speaking. I mean, now, if you resist re- arrest, you get whatever you get. I mean, I've never been tased. But then again, I've never copped an attitude. And then one would say, well, yeah, but then again, you're white. I mean, I've been pulled over a lot. Usually for speeding. I've had cops in my home. And I had a pistol on my hip. And they didn't have a problem, and I didn't have a problem. And they, weren't, they were there because we were robbed by white meth heads. <laughs> in the inner cities of America, because I can speak for America, I can speak for major cities. At my church in Knoxville that we served at was inner city. We were in a poor part of town. You know, I, I get it. I did a bunch of work in downtown and Knoxville and lived in Seattle and Indianapolis. Uh, there's a unique tension that arises, and it's built through profiling, interactions, and sin. So think about this. We've got to start somewhere because this is a chicken or the egg kind of argument. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Which comes first, police brutality or behavior that asks for police brutality? So if you're a cop in the inner cities and it's got a higher crime rate, higher violence rate, home theft, home invasion, and a disrespect for police, you're going to be on edge. Let, let's, let's, take, let, let's take the police's perspective first. So when you're on edge, you come into any situation in the inner city, and there's whites that live in the inner city too, so let's not make it this all a white-black thing. You're going to enter a situation a little bit more trigger-happy, so to speak, a little bit more on edge, a little bit more uh, not eager to take junk off anybody and put them down. And therefore, you, you help feed, as a police officer, the stereotype that cops are brutal, goose-stepping, bigots 
You help as a cop. But on the other end, if, you're, if you live in the inner city, whether you're black or white or whatever, and that's your attitude of cops, you don't view them as friends. You don't view them as defenders of the innocent and executioners of justice. So you cop attitude back. So your attitude fuels their tension. If you're a cop, your tension fuels their attitude. And we can see how this thing just ratchets up. All right? If you're a black American who's dwelt in the inner city, your only interaction with cops fits that paradigm. That stereo, that's a stereotypical experience. But if you're a black that's dwelt, who's lived and grown up in the suburbs, that's not your experience. If you're a black whose parents went to college or you went to college and you realize that not, not all whites want to kill you, in fact, most whites don't even care, uh, you know, they just... Can't we, I think we're like the new Rodney Kings. Can't we just all get along? You know, they never talked about Rodney King being so strung on PCP, fighting eight police officers. They never showed that part of the Rodney King riots where, they, where then the African-American community of Compton burned down like 90% of Compton. So I don't get that either. Um. Anything I say with this, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be totally received by anybody that may listen to this in the future. So, the experiences between blacks in the inner city and the suburbs and rural communities like ours are different in America. So I called again almost every one of the blacks in our church. Talked to Cephas and Dr. James and Frank and James Jr. and uh, tried to get a hold of the Beidus yesterday, but I ran out of time. And, I, and Mr. Bill Maddox, I said, have the cops in our town ever, ever mistreated you? No, sir. Have, if they've pulled you over, were they ever anything but polite to you? No, sir. They were all polite. Did you ever felt like you were being profiled? Two of them said, I felt like maybe I was being profiled. But when they pulled me over, they were nothing but polite. And when everything checked out, it was no big deal. That's different. That's a different experience than someone from the inner city who says all cops want to do is profile you guilty for being black and they're going to harass you just because they can because they woke up in the morning and they said it's, it's black hunting day. That's their experience, so that's their reality. Now you bring that over to the sports teams and when you realize a lot of our major sports players come from the inner city and that is their experience, they don't have the experience of the Dr. James in Cookville or the Cephas of Blockwaz in Cookville. Cephas said something funny. I said, have you ever been the, at the end of racism in America? He said, yeah. He said, and there was no mistaken about it. He said, I had just moved from Ghana and I was beat up by skinheads. He said, there was no misunderstanding there. He said, it was all over the, I don't, I don't think he said it was the news. He said, the police had to get involved. He said, I was just a 12-year-old kid or 13-year-old kid fresh off the boat from Ghana and skinheads beat me up at school. He said, there was no misunderstanding. It wasn't, oh, I'm sorry, sir. He said, but other than that, no. 90, he said, 98, 99% of my experiences in America has not been the stereotypical Black Lives Matter thing. So if we can understand that a lot of these sports stars, and I'm by no means saying I approve of them kneeling at the national anthem or disrespecting the flag that gives them freedom. If you understand that all they have known from 18 to 19 is this ratcheted up tension that you and I don't know, then you can understand their whole perspective is jaded. It doesn't make it right, but it is reality to them. All right? And it's important 
we understand where they come from in their attitude or their experience so that we don't feed the problem. Amen. I don't approve of them. I don't think they should kneel. I think, honestly, they should take their money, go back to the hoods and educate and start to de-ratchet that tension and start to, you know, help, help young black folks ride around with police to understand what they have to deal with. I like what the black sheriff in Dallas said when that big shooting, when the black guy shot all the cops. He, the black sheriff said, if you don't think we're doing a good enough job, I invite you to come down to the police academy and help us patrol your neighborhoods. That, that would help it. Amen. Today, severe or extreme tensions are not pure racism. Because even the police brutality that we're experiencing in the inner cities is at the hands of some black cops. But the black cops understand the black stereotype, and you couldn't say they're racist because they're blacks. So they are exercising their prejudice based on culture. In Cookville, you know, I've been in Cookville now on and off since 1994, so that's 23 years. I was gone for six years. I've been in Cookville on and off 17 years we have a black population in Cookville. I preach for most of them in their churches and, and friends with all the black pastors in town. The black community in Cookville is not your typical Nashville inner city black population. Totally different culture. It's not the same as, as uh, Cherry Street Avenue in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's not the same as um, the hill in Seattle. There, there was a hill in Seattle where the, the inner city blacks did live. And there's a culture there. Most of what we're dealing with today is not pure racism, but culturalism. And when, when any part of town is known for violence and hostility, the police roll in their tents. It could be a trailer park in Cookville full of white meth heads. Yeah. And they know that's where all the violent crime is. So anytime they get a call, the police have their own culture that says, oh, Man, not that neighborhood. You know, they go in with the, the vest on, body camera on. They don't have the AR-15 in the back seat, in the trunk. It's in the front seat, and they're ready because of a reputation based on a culture. Same if you have to patrol any inner city that has a cultural stereotype. That, like I've said, if you don't like your stereotype, don't feed it. It's fed. And it's, it's been fed since desegregation in the civil rights movement. Profiling and stereotyping based on an inner city, inner city culture that is tied to a skin color. It's not racism, but it's culturalism. It's a profiling and a stereotyping based on an inner, inner city culture that is tied to a skin color. When we lived in Seattle, my mother, she got into pharmaceutical sales, and one of the things she did was she went to high pregnancy mothers, high-risk high pregnancies, and she hooked them up on a it's called a pump, like you've seen the uh, diabetic, diabetic pumps. It's like a pager, and you have a permanent pick line that feeds you uh, medicine. It's called a trabutaline pump. And so she would go into these high-risk pregnancies where these mothers had to be on bed rest for six and seven months. That way they didn't have to be in the hospital. So I remember going with her one time, Queen Anne Hill. It was not Queen Anne Hills where all the gays live in, that, in Seattle. There's another hill uh, where all the blacks lived. It was their ghetto. My mom got called out there. To, to take care of a family in that rough part. And it was a Hispanic family, but they were Americanized. And so I, she went with, I went with her because she didn't want to go by herself. So yeah, 35-year-old woman, I'm not going by myself to the worst part of Seattle. I'm taking my 14-year-old son because that's really going to... 
And so um, we are the new car in there, and we go in there, and uh, the lady gets hooked up. My mom does the thing. That back in those days, you, had, you, you did have Internet. You just put the phone on the thing, and, it, and they could do wireless stuff. Well, not wireless, but because there were wires everywhere. But they, these, these blacks surrounded our car, my mom's car, uh, because it was a new car, and, and we, we don't fit in their neighborhood. And so my mom was scared to leave and she's crying and the Hispanic guy stands out and he yells a racial slur, hey, you bunch of, get away from that car. That woman is here taking care of my wife. She's a nurse. You leave her alone and you let her be. And they all backed off. That's a culture. That, and you know that if they're treating a nurse that way who's trying to help somebody who's their neighbor, then when the police get called in for a violent issue... They're coming in tense because the cop just wants to go home. If you wouldn't be a problem, if you wouldn't make a problem, there wouldn't be a problem. So here's what, here's what modern research says. Here's what all this research says. It's not just the police stereotyping blacks for different treatment. Sports agents stereotype blacks for special treatment. Cephas shared with me a story that I'm going to call drug pushers target blacks. Cephas was telling me last night, he said, Pastor, not too long ago, he said, uh, I, after church, I go to Walmart and I'm dressed really nice because it's church and I have a hat on. My, you know, Cephas wears his hat. And he said, I'm walking into Walmart and this car pulls up and there's folks coming and going and they're coming from church. And the guy calls, hey, come over here, buddy. And I walk over, he said, but I know something's not right. So I approach him with the window down and I, and I say, hey, uh, what do you want? He said, the guy wants to sell me drugs because I'm a black guy, but I'm dressed in a suit. He said, so that bugged me, and I stepped back to watch everybody else coming and going he didn't bother with because they were white, even if they were frumpy dressing. He said, so in that case, being dressed nice did not prevent me from stereotyping. The fact that I was black, this guy thought I would buy drugs from him. He said, so I went inside, and I called the chief of police, and he said, and two minutes later, that guy was being busted, hauled off to jail. <laughs> uh, Cephas also told me of a research that was d just done. They did a simulation to prove racial prejudice. And they said it was like a, a, like a mock setup with a video game. And they were given a, a, like a remote control gun, like a video game gun. And they said, shoot the person that most intimidates you when they come into this little scenario. And everybody shot the black guy first, including the blacks. Which brings me to something Dr. Lonnie Brown told me at breakfast a couple weeks ago. Dr. Lonnie Brown is a black pastor in Flint, Michigan, rough part of Michigan, uh, inner city pastor. And he's, I said, Dr. Brown, I said, tell me, I mean, give me the mindset of the inner city because I, I, I'm trying to wrap my mind around this because I'm a white guy from a racist background in the South. But I, my, the folks I run with, we don't even care. Why is there this hostility back towards us? He said, it's real easy, pastor. He said, in the black community, now he's speaking inner city, we're taught that every white person hates you and would like to see you dead. But we're also taught we can't trust each other because we know how we are. That's what he said. He said, and you can only imagine what kind of confusion and hatred that puts in us when we can't trust the whites because they want to keep us down or kill us, but we can't trust each other because we know we'll rob from each other. Who does that leave you trusting? 
So I've got some Bible thoughts. We've got a few minutes left. Every, every man is right in his own eyes. So I, I make the statement, don't allow your personal experience to be your gospel or guiding light in race relations. Not everybody of a skin color or a culture type is the defining type. Kendall, Kendall, who was part of our church for many years and still comes around, and he and I still talk. You know, he was raised in the absolute rat hood of Chattanooga. And he said, Pastor, if there hadn't been a white guy in my hood selling us candy, I'd have grown up hating all white people. Because we were taught all white people aren't worth talking to. They all hate us. He said, but this white kid, this white man in the hood, he would give us candy to sell so we wouldn't sell drugs. He said, and he, he told me, he showed me that not all whites were like I was taught. And Kendall shaved his head, probably has one of the most articulate minds I've ever met, got his degree from tech and industrial engineering, and is now doing 3D printing and robotic stuff in Nashville for a company, and is engaged to be married to a beautiful girl who's raised in a Pentecostal pastor, chaplain, military chaplain family, and has totally come away from the hood, and, um, and just absolutely loves me, and we love him, and so you can't let your experience be your defining light because it's stupid. So I make the point, my wife was robbed at gunpoint by your typical black thug in Indianapolis and he totally profiled her because we were at church in the inner city, what's now the inner city, visiting old friends and she's dressed nice because we dressed nice for church. We didn't dress like the rest of the white people did at that church service because it had gone totally seeker friendly. He didn't target any of the blacks in that church. He targeted my wife because she was dressed nice and she had an infant. And she was easy pickings in the ladies' restroom. So he went in there and pulled a gun and put it in her face while she's changing Lydia's diaper. Says, give me all the money. And it'd be real easy to get racist. But the gospel does not permit me to. And the cop said, what's he look like? I said, you're typical thug. Was there anybody else here that looked like that tonight? Yes, sir, a third of the church. I said that in front of the pastors. <laughs> I said, but we were also robbed by white meth heads. They broke into our apartment on my birthday Sunday night, nine years ago, and robbed us blind. A bunch of white meth heads. And at the time, we had a very crooked district attorney. Those guys had robbed 75 houses and gave him a slap on the wrist. The detectives who came in, that's when I had the gun on my hip, they were very frustrated. I said, you guys don't mind if I wear my pistol? They said, no. They said, honestly, we hope these guys will break into somebody's house like you and you'd shoot them. He said, it would make our job a lot easier. We're hoping people like you would kill them because it would send a signal to our community. The detectives were frustrated because we had a crooked DA back in the day. We don't now, thank God. I I'll share with you, I've been stared at almost every time I go to Africa. And it doesn't offend me because I understand I'm a different color. And the further into the remote bush you go, the more you get stared at. But you can also use it for the gospel too. I've had children rub my hands in my face because they are not old enough to have ever seen a white. And I'm the first white. And it doesn't offend me. I think it's the most adorable thing. It's like, yeah, it doesn't come off. Doesn't, and you're not going to rub off on me. No. They just don't know how to handle it. And I've been concerned for my safety a handful of times in Africa because we were whites. And that 
This, in, in February this year, I was made fun of, I told you about the guy squeezing his nose together like Michael Jackson to make fun of the fact that we have narrow noses. And, he, and I couldn't hear it, but um, our guy who always goes with us, Nelson, he said he was trying to speak with an American accent to make fun of you. And they were ashamed of this guy. That they were so insulted that they, he would dare make fun of us, their guests. So that's no big deal. Dr. Barclay was telling me a story about Bishop Keith Butler. If you know who Bishop Keith Butler is, he has a church of like 18,000 in Detroit. And he was raised, he told Dr. Barclay, I was raised and I was taught that all whites want you dead. And if you get pulled over by the police, this is what you have to do. This is how you get out of a police pullover and don't get killed. And he was telling Dr. Barclay, he said, now, he's, doc, he was 60 years old, I guess, when he told the story. He said, now, we have built such a massive ministry here, he said, and I have such favor with the, the Detroit police. Nobody graduates from the police academy without me praying for them and going through my chaplaincy, and I lay hands on them. I mean, that's his influence. He said, but Dr. Barclay, to this day, I will get pulled over, and fear comes all over me, and I automatically start going back to what my daddy taught me even though it's a cop I graduated pulling me over to say hi and to tell me thank you. He said, that training just comes out of me and I hate it. He said, I have to rebuke it. It was that instilled in me and all they're doing is pulling me over. They'll even let me go off of tickets, but they're pulling me over to say, hey, that's Bishop Butler and they want to bless me. But he said, it's just so ingrained in me. I don't, I have to still fight it to this day. I'm going to quote Carlton Pearson who I know is a total heretic now. He's denied Christ and he's going to hell. But he used to be Oral Roberts' number one disciple and had a tremendous ministry. I heard him say this in a meeting. I've been in one meeting with Carlton Pearson probably about three years before he went heretic. He said, every time the Holy Ghost wants to bring us blacks into revival, we try to turn it into a civil rights movement. That's a profound statement from a black pastor. So let me say this. Here's what we do. The church has a commission to preach the gospel of reconciliation back to God. Racial reconciliation will follow. But we are not to be sidetracked taking the churches and the gospel money, the gospel tithe to preach racial, racial reconciliation. If you get people born again, the work of the Holy Ghost will begin to do that. And if pastors would disciple their sheep out of it, whether it's white against black stupidity or black anti-white stupidity, we would have it automatically. But our job is the reconciliation back to God Almighty. Nothing else. We're not called to rub elbows and march with pagans for social causes. 90% of the church loves to do that now in America. We are commanded to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to those pagans and win them to the kingdom. Social activism will always be dead works of the flesh, and there is no eternal power in it. It is a demonic distraction away from the kingdom. And I have pastor friends who would much rather march for racial reconciliation than come pray with me for four hours. I've been invited to be, partake in racial marching. I, I couldn't believe it. Pastor Chris, we're going to do some marching over this shoot, latest, latest shooting. You mean the one where the guy fought the police officer and grabbed his gun? You mean that one? I'm going to march against the cop that defended himself doing his job? I'm sorry, man. I love you and I love blacks, but that's stupid. I didn't tell him that. I just didn't answer. I didn't respond. I don't know how to respond at the moment because there was no way to win that one. Like the guy fought the cop for the cop's gun. The cop just wants to go home to his wife and kids. 
you're going to get shot. I don't care if you're a purple hippo. You wrestle a cop for his gun, you're going home dead. The body of Christ is made up of all nations, tribes, and tongues. Not just white people, not just black people. The entire body of Christ is made up of every color. And that's the way Jesus loves it. And we are commanded by our God to grow his family by preaching the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And a lot of this racial stuff can become nothing but a goddess and an idol if we don't watch it. Uh, Pastor Titus told me a story during apartheid, which was South African enforced segregation and, and legalized prejudice. He was invited to translate for Reinhard Bonnke in South Africa. And so he goes to the, the, the crusade. And of course, it's, it's before 1994, which is when apartheid ended. And um, I believe that's right. That's when Mandela came out and became president, maybe a little bit before then. Uh, so he's under apartheid, and so blacks have to be segregated. In South Africa, you have blacks, you have coloreds, you have Indians, you have whites, and then the whites, you have British and Afrikaners. So you talk about segregated. They're confused. That's why their, their flag has so many colors. Really, it is. It rec- represents the diversity. And so the police would not let him come anywhere near Reinhard Bonnke because he's a black. And he said, I didn't get offended. It's not my fault the man is an ignorant pagan. He said, so he sat me over here in the black section. I said, no problem. Reinhard Bonnke knows he called me here. He knows me. And he said, Reinhard Bonnke took the platform and saw me. He said, Brother Titus, what are you doing there? Come up here. And in front of everybody, promoted the black man to the platform so he could translate. That's what Jesus said. Don't choose the chief seats. Choose the low ones and let great people call you up higher. Don't get offended. Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. We're all going to be discriminated against if you get into the right situation. You just haven't experienced it because most of you are white and we live in a mostly white town. You go someplace else. You go to Mexico, they'll discriminate against you. You go to Africa, they'll discriminate against you. You go to Iceland, you're not Icelandic, they'll discriminate against you. You go to, I don't know, China or Russia, you're not them, you'll be discriminated against. Because prejudice knows no bounds. We just know it in our flavor because we're in the South. Father, we thank you for this lesson and these series of lessons. I hope, Lord, I've said something that would help somebody some way or another. Bless us this morning as we prepare our hearts to love you more, to love your people, and to reject offense. Help us to understand what fellow Americans have suffered and understand where they're coming from, that even though we don't understand it, it doesn't deny the fact that that has been their experience. And may we help them out of that hurt, and may we help bring about a change in America through the gospel of Jesus Christ, not through social activism. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.